When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord, to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore you and your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished among the most distant land under the heavens. From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God, and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now what, am I, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us, so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After you. Thank you, Richard. 
So the reading's in your leaflet, and uh, there's an outline in there as well. I'll show you where we're going. That's better. I'm in the middle now. Well, have you got anything coming up soon that you're trying to live now in light of that future reality? I don't know, maybe a student with exams, you're revising stuff. Um, whenever I plan, you might notice I'm not from around here, I'm from England. And when I go back to see family and friends in the UK, I always have a bit of preparation to do, a bit of things to do now in the present in, in light of that future reality of visiting my family especially. Because I've got a picture of everything. This is my sister, Kath, before and after. She's just done, not a marathon, an ultra marathon. 50 kilometers. Crackers. And the worst thing is that some people do 100 kilometers. So she's super fit. And so is, there's three of us that don't do any running. And there's three of us that do lots of running. I'm in the no running category, okay. But the runners, they're super fit. And honestly, I get a bit embarrassed about how unfit I am when I go back to visit. So I try harder than usual to cut down on bad eating and to do more exercise in those weeks leading up to, uh, in light of that future reality of seeing my family again. Well, today we get to the high point, the sort of rhetorical climax of Deuteronomy. It's not the end, there's a sort of an epilogue. But this is where we're finishing our series. And it's all leading to this point, though. A stark choice. Verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And verse 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. It's a choice really simply put for those Israelites in front of Moses for them uh, in the here and now when they're about to enter the promised land. But it's a choice that to make in light of the future reality that God is promising them. To choose life now in light of God helping them to choose life in the future. And it's a choice for us now to choose life in light of God's promises to give us life now and into the future, to choose life. So let's get into chapter 30. Where we're heading is we're going to look at this sort of preview that God gives them about how things are going to pan out. We're going to look at the promise of God's grace, his intervening in grace to make sure to make to rescue and restore them. And then finally, we'll look at what the right response is for them and for us to God's promises. That's where we're heading, and it's in your outline. So first, just when you thought it was over, let's have a look at this preview that God gives them. And it's a funny way of concluding from, from Moses, this sort of inspirational pep talk that he's been given before going into the promised land. Because it sounds like God would have been perfectly just in telling Moses to say to them, you know what? We've given it a good go. You had your chance in the desert to straighten out. But I've done my research and it's just not going to work out. Let's call it quits. That would have been fair. But verse 1, it's not all bad news. They will experience the blessings that they have just been hearing about. But all the curses will be theirs as well. That's the bad news. And there's about three curses to every blessing. 
So that's a lot of curses. Okay. So even before they go into the land, they get to know it's inevitable they will disobey. That they'll choose death and destruction and they'll end up banished into exile before they've even gone in. I remember when uh, we had decided, we'd decided to emigrate to Australia and um, got talking to a bloke at work, Alan. He said, oh, Australia? I know a bloke who's just moved to Queensland. He said he just sweats buckets 24-7. There's flies everywhere all the time. There's deadly spiders, deadly snakes. You can't go in the water because something might eat you or sting you. Everything's more expensive. It's hard to get a job and houses are more expensive. Still, good luck. I hope it goes well for you, is what I said. Thanks for the inspiration, Al. And that seems to be what Moses is doing here, doesn't it? At first glance. The thing is, in terms of the covenant promises that God has made with them and their ancestors, God has more than kept his side of the bargain, despite extreme provocation from them already. And that's before they've entered the promised land, where they'll go on to prove themselves incapable of consistent obedience. So God owes them nothing. Curses and exile are their just deserts. And each one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that's all we deserve from God as well. We've all, in our own way, turned against him and deserve punishment. And Romans 2 tells us we even fall short by our own standards. So imagine this. Imagine you've got a voice recorder that's with you 24-7 your whole life. And it only records when you're telling other people what they should do. Like your standards, what you think is right and wrong. And then finally you die and you get to meet God and you say, well, I'm sorry, God, I I didn't know you. You can't judge me for not meeting your standards. So God says, well, okay, instead, let's listen to this. And he plays back your recording of your own standards, your own conscience, your own sense of right and wrong, and judges you on that instead. Well, which of us would stand up to our own standards, let alone God's? How much less then can we stand before our good and holy God, knowing what we've done? And yet, and yet. From verse 2, the rest of the paragraph is good news. Fortunes restored, the scattered and the banished, gathered back home, obedience, prosperity, virility, by every measure, a success story again. So just when the reasonable thing would be for God to pull the plug and it all be over for them, God's going to bring them back. Why? Because God is good. All these things are going to be given to them by God out of just sheer kindness and grace. So God will curse them because he is good. Because he's holy and just, perfectly fair all the time. So he can't just let our prideful, evil rebellion go without punishing it, without consequences. And God will generously not is good in that he will generously not just forgive them, but restore them to something even better because he is good. So he's good in cursing them, he's good in blessing them. 
And this tension runs all the way through Deuteronomy and all the way through the Old Testament. How can God be true to his perfect goodness, his perfect holiness, true to his goodness? And we'll come back to that. But we're left with another question. Given Israel have and will have a proven track record of being ratbags, how is it that they will, verse 2, return to God, obey him, and love him with all their heart and soul? They aren't so far, so how are they going to in the future? Because we could all fill up our voice recorder pretty quickly. We all know what we should do. We should hold back that snide remark, control that temper, switch off that unhelpful TV show, forgive that person who wronged us. The problem is we need help doing it. We need heart surgery. That's our next next heading. We need heart surgery. So as I said, when I'm going to see my family and from time to time other times, I try to eat and exercise in light of that future reality. And to be honest, I don't usually do that well. Because you've got a different stomach for desserts, haven't you? An extra, I think it goes down your leg or something, even if you're full. You know, I'll be offered chocolate or I'll be en- end up eating out for lunch and make poor choices. But wouldn't it be great if I woke up each day just desperate to go for a run wouldn't it be great if I just went off any food that's bad for me and just loved kale (laughs) mung beans mmm organic watercress then I could really transform couldn't I well God promises the Israelites that he's going to change them from the inside out. Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So circumcise your hearts. That's, that's the idea that God will change them from the inside out. He'll do spiritual surgery on their hearts. Uh, your heart in the Bible is the center of your will. It's it, Your heart is what you trust with, what you hope with, what you make decisions with. And God promises that a day will come when that crippling inability to obey will end. Then we'll truly be able to choose life. And the good news for us is that the New Testament tells us that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And Philippians 3 verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. So God comes into our hearts by his spirit as we come to believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and trust in him. And that transformation begins. Now, you'll know from just even the evidence of just last week, even maybe just yesterday, that this change is not instant. 
we don't stop sinning altogether. We're still broken people in a broken world. And the fact that you have sinned this week doesn't mean you are not a Christian. Let's assure you of that. But our starting point has changed. Our orientation has changed. God has turned your heart to face him, to run the race for Jesus, a race you are guaranteed to win in Jesus. And God will be at work in you to keep changing you to become more and, to more and more choose life and become like Jesus. So that our struggle against sin is no longer hopeless because it's no longer all down to us. So we spur one another on. That's a, it's a race we're facing, running towards God, guaranteed to win. We need each other cheering one another on on the way. So we spur one another on as we grow in Christian maturity, as God's spirit works in us gradually, um, so that gradually what we ought to do becomes what we want to do. More, they become more and more the same thing. What we ought to do and what we want to do become more and more the same thing. There's a hymn writer, John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace, you probably know. And he wrote loads of hymns, but he wrote another one that put it really well. I think I've got it on this slide. It goes like this. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure no less than duty's call to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. So if you are struggling with a sin, with something you keep going back to that you know God doesn't want you to do, and you feel really torn apart by the struggle, well, that's a good sign. Because in that tug of war in your heart, God has the other end of the rope, and that tension you're feeling is because he is changing you. And it can be terrifying to let go. To give up all that we've invested in going our own way and handing over to control to God. That can be really frightening. But God is good. God is trustworthy. He's full of grace. He loves you. He wants the best for you. And in Jesus, we've already won. So keep looking into the beauty of Jesus and all he's done for you, his love for you, and he will increasingly become your highest pleasure. You see, it's not rocket science. That's the next heading in our outlines. It's not rocket science. See, most of the world's religions have got a sort of truth quest element to them. Um, a path to enlightenment, to discover, that kind of thing. And even in secular systems of thought, it's all, people say things like, it's all about the journey. Things like that, don't they? Uh, when I was a kid, a cult favourite, everyone loved this show. Everyone at primary school loved this show, Monkey. Everybody ever watched Monkey? Monkey Magic, a few of your older ones, yeah. Brilliant. Look it up on YouTube. I think it's on Netflix as well, actually. 
And Monkey was about um, Monkey, Sandy, Pigsy, and the, the Buddhist priest, Tripitaka. With lots of cool martial arts fights, that's why we liked it. We weren't bothered about the religious quest thing. But they were always traveling, okay? They were always, and at the end it said they were on a pilgrimage quest, a quest that would last for a lifetime. Sounds really intriguing and woo, doesn't it? Well, Moses reminds Israel that their truth quest is, well, it's pretty ordinary. It's pretty everyday. Verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea at the end of some quest so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. And in your heart, so you may obey it. So the problem is not that they are in search of truth. They're not going into the land on a quest to find out how to live and know God. We're not at church on some quest to find out some super, like, special ninja Christianity. We start in the gospel and we stay in the gospel. Now, God has revealed himself to them. He's told them exactly how to live the best possible life they could in the land through his law. And he says it's not all too hard. He says it's doable. Now, it's probably the case that in verse 11 there, the now of when is the now, is the now of when God has circumcised their hearts. Um, that, so that verse 14 means that when God has intervened to transform them from the inside out, His word is on their hearts. But regardless, the generation in front of Moses, they're being called to obey as if this is already completely true for them, as if it's all doable. For us now, Jesus has come to make all this come true. It's even simpler for us, even simpler. The Apostle Paul quotes these very verses from Deuteronomy in his letter to the Romans And talking about Jesus, he concludes, Romans 10, verse 9. Listen, tell me if this is too complicated, all right? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that complicated? Is that too difficult or beyond your reach? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to ask, why not? Because I reckon whatever your objections, whatever the barriers you have, however high the costs, they're not insurmountable. Remember verse 4, even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond God's reach. Jesus is real, and he simply calls you to follow me, to choose life. That's our final heading, choose life. Moses finally sums up everything that he's been preaching to them throughout this Deuteronomy message. They have a simple choice, choose life or choose death. 
Verse 15, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Verse 19, this day I call the heaven and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you. Life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land. He swore to give you your fathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Three things to say about these final verses. First, notice it's the heart orientation that is first. And obedience then comes from that. Verse 16, love the Lord your God, which is worked out in, overflows in, walking in obedience. Or alternatively, turning our hearts away from God works out in worshipping other idols. See, our hearts are never neutral. We're always trusting in, hoping in, treasuring something or someone. Choosing to love God with our hearts is choosing life. Israel's obedience as they entered the land was to be a, a preview a prelude to God's people's future total obedience and as we seek to obey God now in our lives we can do that knowing God has circumcised our hearts that he's begun his work in us which will be complete when we die and go to meet him or when Jesus returns whichever happens first so we can live in obedience now in light of knowing we will, we will definitely obey fully, perfectly, in our future salvation. Second, notice that God's ways Moses has set before them, he describes as life and prosperity. God's ways are good. They're life-giving. They're a good idea. They work. See, people try to sell us the idea that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. That he works out what we might want to do or what we enjoy and then sets his law against it. That's the lie that we get told. And that's a distortion. That's a con. God's ways are good. And sometimes God's ways will go against what all our friends are doing or what our culture says is true and life-giving. But we can be confident that God's ways are not only true, they're good, they're excellent. And living in obedience to God and encouraging others to follow his ways, well, that's the loving thing to do. Because they are life-giving and good ways, excellent ways. But let's be clear, when I say they're good and life-giving, loving God and following his ways will bring us suffering. It will cost us friendships, time, money. Yet even the heartache following God brings, he will use to bless us and work in us to make us more like Jesus. Even the bad stuff, he's excellent. God's ways are good, excellent, and life-giving. Third thing to say, verse 20, 
The Lord is your life. The Lord is your life. Don't miss that throughout Deuteronomy, throughout this chapter, it's all God's initiative. It's all God, stuff God does in showing us grace first that is the basis of our relationship. So don't ever fall for going back to relying on you obeying God's laws as the basis of your relationship with him. Always keep turning back to trusting in, relying on Jesus. Because we all deserve the consequences of disobeying God. Verse 18, you will certainly be destroyed. But Galatians 3 puts it like this. So there's Galatians 3, 10 and 13. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So the truth is that all of us in some way have chosen death curse but Jesus took that curse on himself on the cross in Jesus God was fully true to his goodness in being holy just fair not let even evil just go and he was true to his goodness in giving us mercy grace and forgiveness that is ours if we trust and believe in Jesus So when you catch glimpses of God's goodness on the cross, then you can feel your heart being circumcised. You can feel your priorities all changing, everything turned upside down. Just to finish, I think I've told you before, I'm often asked, how's Trinity Woodcroft going? And I've often got no idea how to answer that. You know, how do you how do you measure how well is a church going? I think next time I'm going to answer. We've got a great community of ordinary people who have chosen life. Chosen life. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We have our problems like any church does. But I'm struck by how we are on the whole living differently in the here and now Increasingly so, because we're at peace about our present and future reality with God. We're a bunch of people who know we are safe with Jesus, and that shows up, it spills out into our life together in all sorts of great ways, in joyful generosity, in care-filled, humble, no-fuss acts of service, usually going under the radar. And so my encouragement to you is, keep choosing life. Keep choosing life. Keep choosing to give over your life to Jesus, continually trusting in him for your right standing before God. Choose to obey God, following Jesus in his ways, knowing that they're excellent and good, and trusting God to keep transforming you into his likeness. Choose life, trusting in the Lord of life to keep transforming you by his spirit. Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you that this gift of life, life to the full, life in you, is so simple. We just trust you, trust in Jesus. Lord, we want to just express to you our thanks for your grace. We want to express our trust in Jesus, that we're standing in him for our relationship with you. And we just pray that more and more you'll make us more like him, and more and more that uh, knowing your grace will spill out of us into obeying you. Amen.